The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Let's pray. Ask for God's help as we dive into His Word. Father in heaven, we thank you for your Word. Thank you for your son Jesus, in whom this Word was written about. And Father, I need your help as, as we as we explore it, as we discuss it, as we look into it and preach it. And I just pray, Father, that your truth will come through, that what you want to say in this passage will be what is heard. And we just pray that we take these things to heart, that the gospel be taken to heart, uh, received with gladness. We pray, Lord, for those that do not know you today, that today will be the day of their salvation. We ask all these things in your precious Son's name. Amen. Uh, again, once again, John, thank you for you know, focusing on reading God's word. It's very important. Um, where are you going to find spiritual satisfaction? Where are you going to find spiritual satisfaction? First of all, what is spirituality? Well, there's a broad range of definitions of spirituality, and there's not much agreement as to what that is. Kind of reminds me of when we ask 50 IRS agents a tax question, you get 50 different answers. However, in a lot of ways, spirituality involves recognition of a feeling or a sense or, or belief that there's something greater than ourselves. Typically involves a search for meaning and purpose in life. Some would say they're trying to fill up what's empty inside them to fill, to fill a void, if you will. It's the way individuals experience connectedness to the moment, self, to nature, and to the sacred. Involves a deep sense of aliveness and interconnectedness. So where are you going to find spiritual satisfaction? There are many ways people look for spiritual satisfaction. Look to sports and art nature, work, family, alcohol, drugs, religion. These and more uses vehicles to obtain spiritual satisfaction. Now, most of these in and of themselves are good things, some of them not so good. Some of these pursuits may cause pain and suffering among yourself as well as others. Now, you may be thinking of destructiveness of drugs and alcohol and what about religion? I'm sure we can all think of instances throughout human history where religion and the pursuit of spiritual satisfaction has caused misery for others. Here's one example, the Apostle Paul. Paul was participating in the murder and imprisonment of those who are threatening his spiritual satisfaction through the exercise of their spiritual satisfaction. If we look at Acts 9, it records how Paul, while on the way to Damascus, was confronted by the true source of spiritual satisfaction. And Paul's eyes were open, his heart changed, and he was transformed from a persecutor of Christ Jesus into proclaimer of Christ Jesus. And thus Paul began his journey to spiritual satisfaction, fulfilling the great commission that's spelled out in Matthew 28, making and building disciples among the nations. So where do you find true spiritual satisfaction? That's what this text is about. We're studying the letter 
to the Colossians written by Paul himself. And so far in this letter, Paul has encouraged the Colossians for their faith in Christ, urging them on to Christian maturity. He's reminding them of where true spiritual satisfaction can be found. But Paul is also concerned with dangerous false teaching. See, false teachings can threaten the faith of individuals, and they can undermine the new identity of believers in Christ. And false teachers also threaten the unity of a congregation. We will see how Paul struggles for other believers, and, and, and not just maturing them, but also maintaining their faith. And Paul teaches that true spiritual satisfaction is found only in the gospel of Christ. So where do you find true spiritual satisfaction? As we explore God's word, I pray that we will remember the true satisfaction. Secondly, that we remember the struggle. And thirdly, that we are grounded in the gospel. So as we explore our passage, we will discuss three things. First of all, remember the true satisfaction. Secondly, remember the struggle or realize the struggle. And third, be grounded in the gospel. So we need to remember that true satisfaction is only found in Christ Jesus. We'll take a look at starting in verse 2 of chapter 2, and Paul writes, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul wants his readers to be established firmly and deeply, in other words, rooted in what he calls God's mystery. So what is the mystery of God? It's Christ, Christ. Christ is God's mystery. Paul's ultimate goal with his letter is that believers might know the mysteries of God. And that mystery is Christ. Paul wants people to know Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what is this treasure of wisdom and knowledge? Well, we're talking about God's truth. All spiritual realities are found in this treasure of wisdom and knowledge. But what does it mean that the treasure is hidden in him? Does it mean that God does not want them to be found? Does it mean that only people with certain privileges are allowed to gaze at them? No, no, not at all. Hidden does not mean concealed. Hidden in this context means to store and protect. And Paul refers to this wisdom and knowledge as a treasure. And what do you do with a treasure? Well, you store and protect it. Why do you do that? Because it's valuable. And Paul calling a treasure shows the value and worth of God's truth. It's precious and worthy of sacrificial seeking. It's a treasure worth giving everything up for. And where is this treasure found? This treasure is found in Christ. This verse here, it bundles everything Paul writes in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1, where he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. All things, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him, that's Jesus, through him, that's Jesus, and for him, that is Jesus. Jesus is before all things and holds all things together. 
He is preeminent. As in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Christ is God's mystery. It is in Christ that we find everything one needs to understand spiritual reality and to lead a life pleasing to God. Anyone, anyone who comes to know Christ by faith draws from the storehouse all the wisdom and knowledge that exists, all of it. All wisdom and knowledge is stored in Christ. Seeking wisdom and knowledge is a wonderful endeavor. We should all do it. You look for them in Christ. If you notice in verse 2, Paul points out a benefit of an individual finding spiritual satisfaction in Christ. It'll bring encouragement to their heart. When Paul references their hearts, he is referring to the very essence of our being. It affects every aspect of our person. See, we are more than just the material elements that make up our bodies. We're much more than that. And, and Paul seeks to encourage what, what's inside us, our, our core being, what makes us us. And, and Paul wants them to know Christ so their hearts, the very essence of who they are, will be encouraged. Because discouraged Christians are an easy prey for the world and the flesh and the devil we need to be encouraged. We find encouragement in Christ. And finding spiritual satisfaction in Christ also brings unity to the church, also in verse 2, because Paul wants our, our hearts to be encouraged, to be, be knit together in love. That means he wants us to be together. He's calling for unity. And it's a unity not under coercion, but under love, under love. And this love is the love Christ has for the church. This is the love that Christ has for all of us. And it's a, a church that finds true spiritual satisfaction in Christ will be encouraged and unified and therefore satisfied. And their love will abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So we need to remember that true spiritual satisfaction is found in Christ alone. Now, secondly, faith in Christ can be a struggle. And we must realize that struggle. We find in our passage that Paul is struggling for the faith of these churches. Colossians 2, 1, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now here Paul tells of a great struggle he has for the people of God. And what is this struggle Paul is experiencing well, if we look back in chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, starting in verse 28, Paul writes, Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his as God's energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul is struggling in prayer and proclamation of the gospel in order to present everyone mature in Christ. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, Paul writes that there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. As Paul mentioned, he's never mentioned the Colossians or the Laodiceans. He's only heard about them. He's only heard about how wonderful their faith is. In addition, he's in prison when he wrote this letter. It's not like he just took a quick jaunt over to see them. 
And it's hard. It's hard to minister to people whom you've never met and can't see face to face, which leads to his anxiety, which leads to a struggle. Instead, Paul is trying to convey his, his encouragements and concerns through the written word, and thus we have this letter to him. In this letter, Paul is extending his apostolic authority, which he established in chapter 1, to people he has never met. Now, we should also know that Paul's apostolic authority extends to us as well, and therefore we consider this letter to be written also to us. And a spiritually satisfied person is one who practices the beliefs of the Christian faith. It includes both knowledge and action who relies on the power of the Holy Spirit and who's concerned with how all of life connects with our relationship to God. And Paul here is an example of a spiritually satisfied man. Since Paul has heard their faith, he's not ceased to pray for them, thanking God for giving the Colossians the gospel and for their faith, thanking God for giving the Colossians, the, or thanking God for the love they have for each other as well as for all the saints for it's unity in the gospel that generates that love for each other. Paul prays that they will be filled with knowledge and all spiritual wisdom, so they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And where do you find wisdom and knowledge? In Christ. In Christ. What does Paul rely on? He relies on the Holy Spirit. He's struggling with all God's energy. He powerfully works within me. This is the Holy Spirit working within Paul. Colossians 1.24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. See, Paul, being spiritually satisfied, is willing to engage in the struggle with joy. Romans 8.18, he writes, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory of that is to be revealed to us. While it is a struggle, while Paul feels daily pressure for his anxiety for all the churches, while he's suffered whippings and beatings and imprisonment, Paul says it's worth it. It is worth it. It's worth it to present everyone mature in Christ, to see them present holy and blameless and above reproach before Jesus. Paul is also modeling the love and care that we should be extending to each other. But there's something lurking out there. There are opponents out there adding to a struggle, attempting to tear down what he has built with false teachings, threatening the faith of these individuals and, and, and these churches. Now, the exact false teaching is not important for our purposes today. We have our own cultural pressures and false teachings to concern ourselves with. Uh, if you really want to know, there are plenty of books written on the subject. Uh, if, if you really want to know what ism the scholars are referring to or talking about in this timeless letter. Um, however, I will say there are three elements to false teachings. Number one, while there are Christian elements to it, false teaching question the uniqueness and preeminence of the person of Christ. They will deny he is God. Secondly, the false teaching denied the perfection and the redeeming and reconciling work which Christ accomplished by his death on the cross. They will suggest Jesus is nice and all, but, but you need something else. You need more. You need to add to him. And the false teaching features a, an appearance of holiness and, and spirituality while attacking the spiritual liberty 
that is joyed by all who by faith were united to Jesus. And the bottom line is all false teachings that attempt to rob Jesus of his glory, they dethrone him, robbing him of his rightful place of prominence, they try to turn you from the faith to stray from the gospel. False teachers will tell people to seek wisdom and knowledge, but they don't tell them to seek them in Christ. False teachers will lure you with hidden and deep wisdom and knowledge. They will claim to have superior insight to the spiritual realm. May entice you with certain rituals or rites, maybe suggest certain things are taboo. Paul later sums that up with false teachers will insist that you do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Yet all these burdens are not commanded by God, and neither do, you, do they bring you closer to him. In fact, they will be barriers to God and will destroy your spiritual satisfaction. The false teachers have an appearance of wisdom, and Paul will call them plausible arguments. But they're deceivers. Their wisdom and knowledge is not found in Christ. And of course, these are not only a threat to our faith, but also to the faith of others. Think of trying to cultivate the faith in our children. Think of the people we minister to. They will be and are being exposed to plausible arguments, false teachings, wisdom and knowledge not found in Christ. And all these with designs on deluding them. How many times have we heard stories of children going off to college thinking that they are believers in Christ and graduating as an atheist? Renouncing your God and everything you believe about him. Now, I don't, want you to leave, I don't want you to leave with the impression that one can lose their salvation through false teachings. It cannot happen. If a child goes to college and comes back an atheist, the fact is they're never in Christ. Because once you're in Christ, you are his. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. I want to be clear about that. I want you to be assured that once you have faith in Christ, he will complete the work that he has begun in you. However, threat of false teachings abound, threatening us and those we minister to, because false teachings will deter unbelievers from the faith. And it'll cause us to lose our joy and our spiritual satisfaction, but not our salvation. And this is part of what Paul is experiencing. These false, these false arguments must be confronted just as Paul is confronting them. So do you see Paul's struggle? Do you feel it? Because it'll also be our struggle. We must remind ourselves and tell others you only find the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ alone. He has them all. And Paul wants his readers to be established firmly and deeply in the gospel of Christ. In other words, Paul wants them to be grounded in the gospel. So, so far, we've seen that we must remember the true satisfaction, that is Christ. Um, we must realize the struggle. And finally, we must be grounded in the gospel. Verse 4, Colossians 2, Paul writes, I say this in order that no one may delude you with, plaus with plausible arguments. For though I am ab absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, I don't want to leave you with the impression that things are blowing up in the Colossian church. The faith of the Colossians at the time of this letter is very strong. Verse 4, Paul is telling the Colossians these things in order that, in order that no one delusions them. So they haven't been deluded yet, but he wants them to be on guard. And church, we must also be on guard. 
And verse 5 is an interesting verse. Remember, Paul has never met them. Yet in verse 5 he says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. So even though Paul cannot be with the Colossians, he felt a strong spiritual tie to them. And even though they were not his uh, direct converts, Paul, Paul considered them to be his spiritual children. And therefore, Paul, through prayer and his letter, generally believed he was with the Colossians in spirit, even though he was absent in the flesh. Now, this is beyond simply saying that they're in his thoughts and prayers. He was truly among them through his letter, which was a valid extension of his apostolic authority. So Paul does not need to be present to exercise his authority. You see something similar in 1 Corinthians 5.3, where Paul writes, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. But unlike in the letter to the Corinthians, where Paul admonished and disciplined the Corinthians, Paul sees the Colossians' strong faith as commending them. And Paul is rejoicing to see their good order and firmness. Now, the words uh, good order and firmness, a lot of commentators suggest that these are military words. The picture of an army being under attack, and General Paul affirms the lines were unbroken, their discipline intact, and their faith in Christ is solid. And, you know, there may be some validity to that. However, what Paul says here is also in line with his encouragements, the opening lines of his letter, where Paul is commending them for their faith. He says their faith is strong. And also in verse 8, we'll see next week, he, said, he says, See to it that no one keep, keep, takes you captive by false teaching. So it hasn't really happened yet, but you know, for the Colossians, is the future that Paul is concerned with. For us, we must be concerned with the now as well as the future. And Paul wants them and us now to be on guard and not be deluded. So in verse 4, we have the first clue as to what the false teaching may be. The false teachers are attempting, are tempting the Colossians with plausible or deceptive arguments. And another interpretation of plausible arguments could be beguiling speech, meaning it's charming or enchanting, but it's deceptive. Or it could be specious arguments that they're superficially plausible. You think, okay, that could be true, but they're actually wrong. They're actually wrong. And we're going to encounter plausible-sounding arguments. And they're going to be trying to delude us into false teachings. And some of these may sound quite appealing. And though we believe in the God of the Bible, we are surrounded by people, in many ways people we respect, that have differing views of reality than we do. And their views can be completely secular or some other form of spirituality or even mostly Christian. And though you do not agree, these differing views may seem plausible. There may be times where it bugs us, maybe even haunts us. I mean, could they be true? So the threat of plausible arguments abound in threatening us and those we minister to. Back when this letter was written, the false teachings had Jewish elements in them. Therefore, they would sound familiar and right to the Colossians. Now, we are more than likely not going to encounter exactly what the Colossians were going to encounter. However, what we encounter will appear to be just as wise and easy to believe and just as deceptive as the arguments in Paul's day. Today, we're inundated with secular ideas and, and arguments, and we live in a society that increasingly relies on science and politics to solve the world's problems. The world searches for wisdom and knowledge outside of Christ. 
And when you engage in these discussions, when you're confronted by them, is Christ in the conversation? Does Christ form your opinions and your ideas? Do you think about these issues biblically? Are you seeking wisdom and knowledge in Christ? A lot of churches, I'm sorry to say, are being influenced by these very secular ideas. Here's an example of a church that's been deluded by, false argu- by plausible arguments and seeking something other than Christ. Recently, I saw a multicolored banner for a church, and the title of it says, Be the Church. And it lists nine things, nine ways to be the church. And I don't know if this is in order of importance or not, but here's number one. Protect the environment. Number two, care for the poor. Three, forgive often. Church, how often should we forgive? All the time. How often does Christ forgive us? All the time. Four, reject racism. Five, fight for the powerless. Six, share earthly and spiritual resources. Seven, embrace diversity. Finally, number eight, love God. Nine, enjoy this life. As I mentioned, the plausible arguments will have Christian elements to them. Aside from forgive often and where God is placed on the list, I wouldn't want to argue against anything on that list. Great. But what is the, was it, is that what it means to be the church? I mean, that sign could hang on the wall of any building. And that sign is a sign of a church has been deluded by plausible arguments. So the result of trying to become friends with a world that hates the one that was the reason for that church to, to exist in the first place. And sadly, this is not the only church to succumb to these things. They're all over. Here's another example, and this is no joke. Talk about caring for the environment. I once heard a sermon from a guest speaker of a church that gave a lecture about recycling. I wish I were joking. Hello, social, environmental justice, goodbye gospel. Add to that the church is a push for polished performances and entertainment to keep so-called seekers as comfortable as possible. Goodbye gospel. You can build a crowd with this stuff, but you will not build spiritually satisfied, mature disciples of Christ. And Paul wrote this letter in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He wants us to be rooted in the gospel. He wants us to be rooted and not deluded. In a world filled with false sources of spiritual satisfaction, how do you become rooted and not deluded? You study the real one. You study the real source of spiritual satisfaction. The more you study the real one, the easier it will be to spot the phonies. I've heard this analogy used. It sounds like a good one. A secret service in this country is responsible for maintaining the integrity of our currency by, by combating counterfeit money. So how do they distinguish the good from the bad? Well, they study the good. They look at the good. They get to know the good as well as they can. They, they study, get to know every detail of the good. That way, when they see a fake, they can immediately spot that that is a fake bill. And likewise, we as Christians, we must study the real Jesus. And we do that by studying and getting to know the word of God. We must be saturated in the word of God. 
We've always stressed the importance of reading God's word. If you didn't believe us, a few weeks ago, Pastor Andy also stressed the importance of reading and knowing God's word. And God bless John for his testimony today, stressing the reading of God's word. We have to be in the word. We have to hear or read the gospel, understand the gospel, live the gospel, bearing fruit from the gospel. Because a Christian wealth is his or her understanding of God's truth. And with that understanding, the believer is well-equipped to deal with false teachers and to live a life pleasing to God. You cannot be spiritually satisfied otherwise, and we will find God's truth and God's word. Colossians 3.16, Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing song, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We will find in God's word that the essence of God's revelation is Christ himself. The better a Christian understands and is rooted in God's revelation concerning the person and work of Christ, the better he or she will be able to recognize and refute false doctrine and to avoid being deluded. There's so many ideas and worldviews today in direct conflict with the truth of Christianity. You cannot refute just one. They must all be refuted. None can be missed. Now, I mentioned a few external ideas earlier. What about the plausible arguments we come up with? Sometimes we can be our own worst enemy, right? Has a thought ever crossed your mind that our obedience causes God to love us more? Or our disobedience causes God to love us less? Ever thought you weren't good enough? Hadn't done enough? Ever thought that you were not qualified? But yet, what does Paul say in Colossians 1.12? Colossians 1.12, he says, the Father who has qualified you. That's right. God, the Father, has qualified you. There are many times we forget the gospel. I forget the gospel. I forget who I am in Christ, and we forget who we are in Christ. And, and Paul wants us to be mature and rooted in the gospel of Christ, and he wants us to be confident in the sufficiency of Christ. We have to constantly remind ourselves that God the Father has united us to the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's united us to Jesus. Jesus is God coming into, the wor into this world in the flesh. He lived a perfect life, always pleasing to the Father. He was hung on a cross to die in our place for our sins, taking the punishment that we deserve. He took the wrath of God for us. On the third day, he rose from the dead. This is the one. This is the real one that God the Father has united us to. This is the gospel. That by grace, God the Father has taken our sins away and given us the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at us, he sees the Son. God the Father has reconciled us to himself. He has qualified us and transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Be rooted in the gospel of Christ and not deluded because it's only in Christ where one can find spiritual satisfaction. You'll never need more than Jesus. If you have Jesus alone, you have enough. And to be rooted is to be satisfied. When you're satisfied in Christ, you, have a, you live a life pleasing to him. Colossians 6, uh, 2, 6 and 7, Paul writes, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him 
and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. True spirituality is concerned with the totality of a person's life. It is concerned with how all life connects to our relationship to God. So what does it mean to walk in him? Well, it means that he is everything to us. He becomes our greatest desire, and we will seek to please him. And Colossians 3, 5 gives an example. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put to death. Get rid of it. And true spirituality results in bearing the fruits of the Spirit, as Paul shows us in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So Paul's encouragement and warning are designed to, to encourage us to rely on Christ, and therefore to walk in Christ, to give us the tools to protect us from false teaching, and therefore be rooted in the sufficiency of Christ, which will bring spiritual satisfaction so everything in this letter up to this point, the opening prayer, the proclamation, the preeminence of Christ are written so our hearts will be encouraged. As I said earlier, discouraged Christians are an easy prey for the world and the flesh and the devil. The world hates us because it hates Jesus. But be encouraged knowing that the God of this universe, the only true God, knows you and loves you. Take to heart that Jesus laid down his life so that you may live. If God is for us, who can be against us? So what is God like? The answer is Christ. The more we study and know Christ, the more we will know God. The more encouraged, unified, and assured we will be, which brings satisfaction. And what happens when you become spiritually satisfied? Well, you become abundantly thankful. When we are rooted in Christ and secure and growing in faith, when you're satisfied in Christ, then thanksgiving abounds. So a friend of mine once said, you're usually grateful after you've been satisfied. So where can you find a spiritual satisfaction? You find it in Christ and only in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have qualified us to share the inheritance of the saints. We ask that you fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of you and be fully pleasing to you. Father, give us a heart and a desire for your word so we can move, more fully understand Jesus and his gospel and therefore bear fruit in every good work, increase in the knowledge of you. And we pray that we'll be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy and therefore be satisfied in you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.